0: Hi, I'm Talia, and I am the host of Compassionate Conversations podcast, Series 2. In Series 2, we will hear from inspiring people who work for and with young people. Each episode is designed to share ways of empowering the next generation to ensure they have the tools to go on to have mentally healthy futures. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on social media, Single Parents Wellbeing. Hi, everyone. Hi, everyone. I have a really special guest speaker here today, but before I introduce you to him, I just wanted to acknowledge that it is Suicide Awareness Day today, and to honour that, we will be having a conversation all around suicide prevention. I just want to send out so much love to anyone who has lost a loved one to suicide. I also want to say to anyone who is struggling right now with your mental health, you are not alone. You are strong and you will get through this difficult day or chapter of your life and move to brighter days. You are unique and there is only one you, and the world is better off for having you in it. Now, I'd like to introduce you to my guest speaker, Ben West. Ben West is an award winning mental health campaigner, author, and activist. Ben does some incredible things within the mental health space to ensure that young people do not resort to self harm or take their own life and instead get the support they really deserve. To go on to have mentally healthy futures. It is an absolute pleasure to have him. Hi Ben, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Hi Anne, thanks so much for having me on.
0: It was nice because we had, you joined on our Learn Share Network event a couple of months ago and we had an amazing conversation didn't we then with lots of different charities and families and young people. Yeah, which was amazing to see everyone working together to start Will will more continue the conversation on mental
1: health yeah definitely it's such a good event so everyone was so engaged in you're right it's so nice to see lots of people coming together collaborating having these conversations with each other I think you know the key to the mental health issue is collaboration is talking about this with different charities different partners different organizations and to see that happen was awesome such a good event such a good audience I really enjoyed it, it was great yeah it. yeah
0: we really enjoyed having you So for those who don't know you, can you tell us a bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, so my name is Ben. I'm a mental health campaigner. And so the reason I got into mental health campaigning was... If you cast your mind back to 2016, I was still in school. I was 16 years old and I had absolutely no idea what mental health was. No one had ever spoken to me about it. No one had ever told me about what that was. I had absolutely no idea what it was. And then my brother was diagnosed with clinical depression. And I was told and I had absolutely no idea. It went in one ear, out the other. I didn't really pay much attention to it and just sort of got on with life and ignored that. And then in January 2018, Sam took his own life. And very, very quickly, I realized that actually this wasn't just some small insignificant diagnosis. You know, when I was told that he'd been diagnosed with clinical depression, I didn't realize at the time, but I'd been told that he'd been diagnosed with a fatal illness (laughs) and I had absolutely no idea. And so the learning curve in the weeks and months after Sam died was enormous because I realized how dangerous this thing is but also just how widespread it was. I spoke to so many of my friends that told me they had depression, they had anxiety, they had um, anorexia, PTSD. I had friends that had attempted suicide before and never told anyone. I had friends that had lost loved ones, had lost parents, siblings, friends to suicide and never told anyone. And suddenly I realised, you know, not enough was being done to create conversations with people and create vulnerabilities between people, but also on a lot sort of wider governmental policy scale not enough was being done to actually address this issue and sort of change that landscape around mental health and so I want to tackle both those things and here we are it's four years later I feel like I'm in too deep to (laughs) to stop (laughs) but we've made loads of progress we've got so many conversations out of my campaigning Helped so many people and I absolutely adore being in a position where I can actually try my absolute best to get these what needs to change out there whether it's in terms of conversations or whether it's in terms of legislation. Yeah, I feel very privileged to be in a position where I can actually push for that.
0: Yeah, and it's amazing. You have, I mean, sadly, you have the experience and it would have been amazing if, you know, you'd fallen into this role almost through a different way. But I think it's probably the main reason also you have the passion that you do and the driving force that you do. And the difference that you've made already is huge with your book. And we'll go into that soon. But yeah, it's huge. So thank you for sharing your story with us. No, thank you. On a more personal level, what were the things that helped you grieve? And what still helps you now in moving forward? And one foot in front of the other in a situation like that?
1: Ooh, that is a really interesting question. Because... A lot of people, when you ask people, how did you cope with grief? So many people answer it or sort of have the opinion that to deal with grief, you almost have to fight against it and sort of battle the grief and sort of win a battle against grief. And I sort of disagree with that way of looking at it. I think actually, you know, grief is not something that is working against you. It is a helpful emotion to go through. it. It's something that is part of you. And I think actually I look at my grief now and I haven't always looked at this. It has been a battle in the past, but I've got to a point now where actually I sort of I consider my grief to be a pet. (laughs) I look at it as like it's my pet dog and it's not obviously a physical thing, but it's inside me. And just as you would a, a dog or a cat or a pet or a hamster, whatever you have at home, you have to look after that pet. Otherwise, you know, it will get worse. You've got a worse situation. And it's the same with grief. You've got to look after it. And it's part of you. Nurture it. Look after it. Be kind to it. So don't look at grief as like the enemy, but look at it as almost your friend. And everyone always, when you go through something terrible and go through grief, everyone always is very quick to say, oh, it doesn't go away, but it gets better. That's true. It never goes away. Like I will be technically grieving for the rest of my life or have grief in me for the rest of my life of course I will you've lost something but that's not something to feel scared by Mm. have that grief treat it as your pet treat it as something to nurture and when I say nurture it when you feel like you need to cry or feel like you need to grieve just let that come out let that happen so many people look at grief as like whack-a-mole like you feel sad and you're like oh I've got to go and run or go and do something to get rid of this grief and not feel this way that's sort of i mean i'm sure it works in the short term for a lot of people but in the long term being able to make friends with it and be able to accommodate it when it rises its head up that's a really important step to being able to live with it because it's not going to go away so that's how i've dealt with it but then obviously you know it's not always <laughs> it's not always okay to just break down in grief and so for me you know if i'm having a bad day and i need to pick myself up i absolutely love running i love going out in nature seeing my friends, all these different techniques that we can use to sort of to refocus and keep ourselves happy. But I just think so many people have such an unfriendly relationship with so many emotions. Sadness, depression, anxiety, grief, all of these different things that we go through. And actually if you reframe it into something that's something that's inside you to care about, it changes things. It changes things quite drastically.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's an amazing perspective. Yeah, I like that. I wasn't really expecting that answer, but that's really good. Yeah, that's good. And over the last four years of campaigning for better mental health support, what are some of the biggest things that you've learned along the way?
1: Ooh, that is a good question. There's some of the biggest things I've learned. Okay, so firstly, I would say that actually what we're sort of talking about at the moment with the general trend around mental health awareness The biggest lesson I've learned being in this game is that actually we don't go anywhere near far enough when we're talking about these campaigns that circle around. I think one of the most unhelpful things that we talk about is how important it is to talk. Ask anyone, ask absolutely anyone, you know, is it important to talk about your mental health? Everyone knows that. Everyone knows that it's important. Everyone that's struggling knows that it's a good thing to talk to someone about it, right? The problem, therefore, is not with people knowing that it's important to talk. It's about the opportunity they have to talk, because let's face it, you wouldn't need to tell people how important it is to talk if they naturally felt comfortable doing that anyway. So I think one of the most one of the biggest things I've learned is we need to actually create environments and situations that encourage people to talk without this whole it's important to talk campaign. So teach people how to listen. You know, very, very few people know how to how to listen and how to bring that conversation up with someone and actually actively listen and make someone feel comfortable. Very few people know how to do that. And it's a very simple thing to do, but very few people know how to feel comfortable doing that. And obviously, we've got the problem with treatment and access to treatment. You know, if people had quick, timely, effective access to good treatment, then you, we wouldn't need to tell them how important it is to talk. Because it would be so easy for them to go and get a, get an appointment. So I think when we talk about mental health, there's, from my experience talking to people that are really struggling, talking to families, talking to friends, talking to people that have lost loved ones, what happens time and time again is, for me, I get this sense of, we're sort of beating up beating them around the wrong bush. Like obviously it's important to talk. I'm not taking away from that at all. It's so so important that we talk. But actually I think the messaging we have around that and our focus should not be on telling people that are struggling to talk it should be trying to rebuild the various aspects of society to actually for that to not even cross people's mind whether it's important or not and that's one of the biggest things i've learned is just every so often you've got to try and think outside the box or not think outside the box but just think and really take a step back and look at the whole situation and think what's actually helpful here And what's helpful is really educating people about how to talk, how to listen, how to make someone feel safe talking to you. And then it goes further. How do we increase access to support? How do we, you know, what should the messaging from public health in England be? How can they properly give a campaign or, you know, obviously in Wales and, and all the other countries? How can we, what is the best way of doing this? And I don't think it's talk because the owners shouldn't be on people that are struggling to sort this out they are they're going through enough without the owners being on them I think there's so much more that we can do as a society to help them it's not up to the one in four to solve this problem it's up to the three in four to solve this problem that's how I look at it and that's taken a long time to sort of learn but it's an important lesson I think and I don't think enough people see it that way so there we go that's probably the biggest thing I've learned
0: and it takes I like the phrase of, oh, it takes a village with all things. And I think it's the same with this. And I think it's unfair to, yeah, I agree. It's unfair to put it on the people who are struggling because actually they're struggling because they're struggling to process in the way that maybe they used to. And they, and yeah, it doesn't make sense. And so I know you're committed to doing lots of work around suicide prevention. Can you tell us some of the ways that you've been doing this?
1: Okay yeah absolutely. So so when Sam died I said that a lot of my friends came forward and talked about what they were going through and for a lot of reasons I sort of just found myself in a position where I couldn't not try and do something for them to give them the platform to have those conversations with with friends and stuff and so what I started it started as I started a campaign called Walk to Talk and basically I organized this massive walk across Kent to London, we all wore bright pink t shirts. It was a great event. And the underlying theme was, let's create this safe environment for you to naturally have a conversation with someone because I find when you're walking or doing an activity, it breaks down that barrier that stops you from having a conversation, a deep, meaningful conversation with someone. And so we got them on a walk, It was a very cool vibe. It was pink camo. It was like, it was great. And so many people had conversations with friends because they felt comfortable having those conversations. And off the back of that, you know, people went to therapy for the first time. People had conversations with their family about things for the first time. And so that's how it really started for me with giving people that comfortable environment to talk. And then from walk to talk, I started talking to my teachers at school. And I realized very quickly that they had absolutely no idea how to spot the signs of someone struggling, how to signpost to help, how to intervene if they saw self-harm injuries or a student having a breakdown. They had absolutely no idea. And they also didn't have the confidence to do that anyway, to approach that student. And I just thought, you know, given the statistics, given how many young people are struggling and that the rate is going up, surely you know, a very basic requirement of being able to be a teacher should be given that knowledge and the tools to see this problem. I did a study in England and Wales in 2019, 18,900 teenagers were admitted to hospital for intentional self-harm or self-poisoning. You know, 18,900. And what happened is when they did a research into anaphylaxis and anaphylactic shock in the same age group, every year, 1,200 around about 1,200 teenagers in school go into anaphylactic shock and are admitted to hospital for anaphylactic shock. And as a result of that number, in England and Wales, as a result of that number, we changed teacher training legislation so that all teachers would be trained how to use an EpiPen. Wonderful. That's such a good thing. But when we're talking about almost 19,000 young people being admitted to hospital every year for intentional self-harm or self-poisoning, 19,000, why are we not thinking about how do we change teacher training to give teachers the ability to intervene early and get people onto that support in the same way that they are trained into using a heavy pen for the immediate support and calling an ambulance (laughs) to get them to professionals? The same model needs to be used for mental health. Let's give them the training to be able to Give that EpiPen, talk to them, intervene, and then be able to signpost them onto support, whether that's you know, going to a mental health team or, or to an early support hub or to the GP or to an, a referral to CAMS. Let's give them that training and they want that training for the most part. And so that's really my campaign in terms of legislation has been for the past four years. And it's taken me to Downing Street. It's taken me to Kensington Palace. It's taken me all over the place. And we're still yet to see proper change here. But I'm absolutely convinced that it will be legislation soon. I'm convinced of that. And I'm going to keep pushing pressure on it because I just see so much value In giving teachers that ability to intervene early. And also, we talk a lot about waiting lists, and there's two ways of really combating a waiting list. You either increase resources to deal with it, or you get people onto the waiting list sooner. And if we can intervene in these situations early and have a teacher go to a student and get them onto a referral early, then we give them, you know, could be an extra couple of weeks, couple of months, which could be huge. So I think that for me is one of the most exciting and one of the most time-consuming areas of what I'm doing to prevent suicide because I find it absolutely tragic that anyone any young person ever feels like they don't want to be here anymore I think that's absolutely tragic and I think we have a position we are in a position now where we can do small things that would really help a lot of people and that for me is the starting block of so many of those things
0: yeah definitely that's amazing uh, when you were speaking, I remembered recently I was speaking to a family. Honestly, it's so sad. This is the reality of not having mental health support in schools because so it's a single mum with her son who's at home with her 24-7 because he had quite a few bad experiences in school where he had anxiety and he was on the verge of having a panic attack and the information hadn't been sent through to the right teachers And then, and so that teacher wasn't understanding, didn't know what was happening. And when he was on the verge of having a panic attack, he was about to, he asked to go get some water, but that was his sign of, I just need to get away from the class to deal with this situation. And it was honestly horrendous. They just saw it as him like causing trouble and not waiting patiently and absolutely drilled into him. I think he is probably just... You know, probably just thinking about the rest of the class and getting on with things, but for that little boy, that was it for him, to go over the edge, and now he can't even step into a school, he's stuck at home, he's not interacting with friends, he doesn't feel safe that if he's in that situation again, that he will be able to work his way through it, and that is the sad reality of what's happening. It's only going to get worse if you're stuck inside and you're not able to interact with young people and your friends and so just that lack of awareness is you know key isn't it
1: yeah absolutely and I think you know look at its very basic level school needs to be a safe place for everyone and that's you know eradicating bullying from schools but also that's creating an environment where the school understands and respects that that people have stuff going on and understand it And look, I'm not trying to say that every school should understand the intricacies of every single mental illness. But I think what we lack in schools at the moment is any intention to look any deeper than just bad behaviour. And I hear this so many times, kids getting punished because they are you know, acting up because they're struggling. You know, people on the most part don't just misbehave in classrooms because they enjoy it. You know, they probably have stuff going on. And up until now, the traditional response to that has been detention, suspension. Uh, Look, suspending a child because they have had a panic attack in class is not going to help anyone. It's awful. But how can we expect the school to act any differently if the people in charge and the people teaching don't understand what mental health and what mental illness is. We can't expect them. This is exactly what will happen if they don't understand that. And, you know, I'm of the opinion that school needs to be safe for everyone. That means getting rid of bullying and that means getting a safe environment where teachers and headmasters and governors and everyone involved in student facing schools need to be trained and need to be aware. And let's make these comfortable environments. Because at the end of the day, what is a school there for? It's about creating, it's about giving people the best opportunity to strive in adulthood. That's what they're there for. And that doesn't mean being good at maths and science. That means, in some people's cases, just feeling safe and being able to make friends and to learn social skills. And to I think it's so, so sad the number of people that really are scared of going to school. And really don't want to go to school. That is a really, really sad fact of this society. But there's ways we can deal with that. And I think, you know, it comes back to te- training teachers. That is not the solution by any means. But I think it's the first step of the solution. And I just think that the sooner we can get that done, the, the better. Because it will take time to change the schools by putting this in teach training. But like I said, it's the first step. And unfortunately, it's taking a lot of pushing to get that step to be taken. But I do think, you know, that's so sad that people feel like that.
0: Yeah. and It seems like it is going back to the issue of people's perspective not seeing mental health as the same as physical health. Because there is a lot of acceptance, social acceptance around physical health. I can understand it's easier in the sense of you can actually, if you see someone's got a massive cast around their leg, you can actually see it. But it's like you said, learning the signs of mental health and treating it with the same compassion that it deserves.
1: Yeah, exactly. And let's teach them why that's true. And that's what Mental Health First Aid goes into. Let's give you an insight into why this is happening and, you know, and what it's like to give them the empathy of being able to step into that student's shoes and be like, okay, here I can empathise with this person and actually what it might be like to be in their shoes. Look, teachers have a very, very difficult job. I don't, you know, they have a very, very difficult job and they are so under-respected for what they do. But This is trying to help them do their job better and make their job easier. Let's give them the tools to have empathy for these students and then be able to help them in the best way that they can, which all teachers want to do. You become a teacher because you want to help young people. And all we're trying to do here is give you the tools to be able to help them better. I just don't see any reason why that's not a good thing.
0: Yeah, I agree. we move want to talk about your book. Let's go. (laughs) So do you want to tell us the title and when you started writing and when it was launched?
1: Yeah, so I've written a book called This Book Could Save Your Life, Breaking the Silence on the Mental Health Emergency. And so this, I had the idea to do it in 2019. I sat down, I've always sort of said, given my mental health campaigning role, I've always said I wish that everyone could have gone through what I've gone through and met the people I've met and had the conversations I've met and experienced what I've experienced without having to have lost someone. Because honestly, the knowledge I have now, and I'm sure so many people out there, as soon as you live through a bad time or see the world for what it is, your perspective on everything changes. Look, I've changed so much since 2016 I'm a totally different person like, without a doubt I'm an absolutely a polar opposite person that's because I've seen I've experienced this and I've seen it for what it is so I've always been like I wish more people could experience that and know that what this is like and then also I've been through a lot and I've learned a lot and I'd like to give people the opportunity to learn about what I've learned about so the book I wanted to write a book from 2019 and then in 2020 I'm sort of lost track of the years now. Time is flying so fast. I don't really know what day it is, what week it is, what year it is. (laughs) I think it was 2020 I started writing the book, maybe 2021. It was a summer. I know that. Um, We started writing and it was going to be a toolkit, but actually it became a bit of a memoir. So it starts when I was younger and goes right the way through losing Sam, the days after losing Sam, all the way to starting Walk to Talk starting the petition, going to university, basically everything. And (laughs) it's incredibly honest and incredibly vulnerable because my big thing, like we said at the beginning, is the owner shouldn't be on people suffering, talking. We really want to create change. It's actually the people that aren't struggling that need to be vulnerable that changes society. So it's an incredibly vulnerable, honest book. Partly also because I sort of was writing it and I was just alone with my laptop and I forgot that people were going to read it. So I was just (laughs) typing away typing away like oh that's a bit sad oh <laughs> yeah <Aww, laughs> and then we got to editing and i was like oh people are reading this so it's very very honest that's exactly why it's important it's because very rarely now do we see people be truly and I mean truly vulnerable and honest about what's going on very rarely do we see that and actually that's one of the most important things that we can do to actually change the scope of this so it's a memoir but in between the story there are what we've called box outs which go into sort of tips and techniques. So anything from how I've coped with, you know, what I'm going with grief, for example, or things to send a friend that you're if you're worried about them or how you can practice before you open up to someone and ways you make that conversation easier. Or, you know, I had to perform CPR on Sam and not enough people know how to do CPR. So there's a box out in there. How do you do CPR? How do you deal with someone in shock? Everything I've learned that I think everyone needs to know are in these box outs. And so basically it is what it says in the tin. I think this book can save people's lives. It is honest. It is given everything I've learned that I think has potentially saved my life. And I've given that to the world and I'm trying to get it in as many people's hands as possible because I just, what drives me is the idea that someone will read it and it will help and it will help stop another Sam going through what he did and it will stop another Ben going through what I did. And so far, the response has been amazing, which is incredibly humbling and incredibly amazing. And I've got so many lovely messages from people that has helped. And that is fantastic and makes me feel so warm and lovely because a lot of work went into that book. And to help even just one person, it's an amazing feeling. But yeah, that's it. This book could save your life. And I hope it can.
0: So what are some of the things other people have said about it? Because I agree. I've also been reading it and... I actually love the balance between the practical it's very practical but then the heart and emotion and the vulnerability is fully there which I think that balance is it reflects the actually true reality of all of the different emotions and experiences that I think we can relate to even if you don't go through something no one has the same story but you can relate and to all of those emotions and Yeah, it's an emotional one, but it's such an incredible one. And I've been speaking to people about it and I definitely I will link it to this podcast so we can keep on helping spread the word about it.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people have been saying some incredible things. I mean, what's actually really lovely for me is because of so when we did our press tour for the launch, it launched in April this year. We did a bit of a press tour. And what we managed to get booked for a couple of shows. So I did the biggest one was Lorraine and I did Virgin Radio. And those audiences are not young people audiences. They're actually, you know, middle-aged parents audiences. And I sort of went in being like, oh, it's not really our audience. Wow. And was I wrong? What an incredible thing, actually, to be able to get those sales to that age group. Because the messages that really stand out for me are the parents that have gone I've read this book it's changed my perspective I'm buying another two and I'm giving them to my kids and they're going to read it and I'm like oh this is so good because now not only have you you helped one person understand it they've you've now created you've changed the whole culture in someone's family yeah. and that's a huge yeah. thing and yeah. so that really excites me because you know that is a small society culture in that house and if yep. you can change that make it a comfortable environment and really have those and engage those conversations, that's amazing. I met a woman the other day for a panel event and she read the book and then she'd given it to her son. And on the way to this event, they were having a conversation about it and they opened up about some really awful stuff that they never talked about to each other. Like, this is what I mean. It's like, it's so, so amazing to put something out there that can actually inspire those conversations. And like we said at the beginning, not tell people to talk but just make it come naturally because you've made them both comfortable having that conversation. That is an amazing, amazing thing. And something, yeah, it's something that still gets me a little bit emotional, actually, because I've put so much work into it. I've been through so much to be able to try and, you know, to see that it's actually making a difference in the real world. That is a hugely, yeah, hugely amazing thing. But that's what some of the people are saying. And it's so, so lovely. I can't get over how lovely, lovely, lovely that is. Yeah,
0: that's so amazing. Yeah, I can see that. I can't say enough how amazing I think it is like yeah I've witnessed it in my family as well of like just especially certain individuals who are maybe a bit more closed books but in recent years have begun like for the first time ever speaking about mental health and it's something that I personally didn't even think I don't know I just think what I'm trying to say there's so many things uncovered that I didn't know and our relationship is even closer now because of it. And I think that's the beautiful thing about it. And it's so permission giving and, yeah just really lovely so yeah.
1: and it's a ripple effect as well yeah a ripple effect because one yeah. person opens up and makes someone else feel vulnerable and, and it's so liberating
0: isn't it being able to and not have like certain things that you can't share especially to the people that you're closest to like it's so like liberating and like lovely just to be able to like know that you can just be or whatever day you're having whatever day they're having that you can like connect on such a deeper level and bring each other into like whatever you're going through, and yeah, exactly. Wow. <laughs>
1: um, so lovely.
0: Yeah, I think we did speak about mental health and the word like emergency, which I'm glad you use that word because mm. yeah, I think that labels it. And we also talked about communication. Have you got anything to add to that about? We've talked about giving the tips, but for those listening, can you just give some of those tips of how to help families communicate and like start those conversations?
1: Yeah, it's a a really difficult one because everyone talks about asking these questions and having these conversations like it's a really easy thing to do, right? It's not (laughs) at all. It's very, very, very hard. And I would say, first of all, don't beat yourself up for not being able to have that conversation because it's a really, really hard thing to do, really, really hard thing to do. Some of the things to make it easier, look, I always think if you want to have a conversation with someone, like anything, practice. It sounds really, really weird. But when I was at uni, I had my little uni room and there was in the bathroom, there was the toilet. And if you put the seat down, it was like you could sit and sit in and look into the mirror. And it was like a big mirror. And I used to sit there. And if there was a conversation, I was, and I, there was a moment where I had to have a really difficult conversation with someone. And I sat there in the mirror and I talked into the mirror at this person and had a conversation with myself and sort of practiced how that conversation would go. So you can sort of practice and work out what you're going to say and how you're going to say and what they might say in return and then what you might say. In any other circumstance in life, if you're going to do something difficult, you'd practice and actually it's a really interesting thing to think about. Like if you're really worried about having that conversation, you don't have to look in the mirror, but just try and think about what you might say and how they might respond and, and, you know, and go through that and and talk in the mirror and having that five minutes with yourself, it can be a really useful thing to do because it makes you feel more confident having it. And the other thing I'd say is I have a little rhyme that I use called cup of tea, one, two, three. So basically if you get a mug of tea in someone's hands, from my experience, you instantly, they will tell you everything. <laughs> tea is like honesty, honesty juice. It's you have but in,
0: in their hand.
1: In their hand, yeah. Make them a brew. Sit there, have a brew with them. It immediately makes the environment a little bit more comfortable than just sitting across the table, like very, very clinical. Get a cup of tea yeah. and then count one, two, three, and just say it. Because so often we sort of know that we're going to have to ask someone around to ask a difficult question. But what will happen is we'll make the tea. Sit down and then we'll be like, oh, how was your day? Or what was, you know, how's the family? Talk about, you're going to small talk. But actually you need that one, two, three. I'm really worried about you. What's going on? You know, count yourself in and just go for it. And that starts the conversation. And then the other thing I'd say is obviously, you know, how I started campaigning. I am a massive believer in the power of walks and running and even driving in the car. Any activity where you're not looking at each other breaks barriers down go for a walk when you're not looking at the person immediately feel more comfortable having a deep conversation it's the same in a car journey it's why I always have deep conversations with my friends in the car because you're sitting there and you're driving and you're not looking at each other and you can have some music on in the background anything that makes them not feel like a clinical they're being watched and judged it breaks down those barriers so those are some of the things I'd say but I just think practice and just count yourself in and say it it's a lot easier said than done and I do appreciate that but some of those are some of the things that have worked for me
0: yeah I get that that's really good I love cup of tea so I feel oh, like oh yeah I
1: absolutely or coffee it depends you it. can have a coffee with someone but I'm more of a tea person my yeah. veins are 90% blood 10% tea so
0: <laughs> 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 me too I get it from my mum my mum at mum's house we just have the kettle on literally 24 yeah. 7
1: I know I need one of those but you know those boiling water taps that some people have in their homes that just on tap boiling water that's what I need
0: oh yeah Oh <laughs> gosh, always, yeah. Always.
1: I know I've just bought a new mug and it's absolutely massive and it's so exciting I oh, l- literally God. look forward to pouring tea into my into that massive mug <laughs> it's one of those like massive sports it's like one of those massive sports directs mugs
0: no way. Oh, amazing <laughs> I swear there's actually science between, like, if you can't actually say I was doing it. If, like, if you, I swear there's science between, like, going like this with a hot cup and it is actually supposed to be comforting. I don't know if I've just made that up because I just believe in tea so much or (laughs) whether I think there is science in it. I
1: I don't know, but I'm sure there's something to it because, you know, in practice, from what I've seen in conversations, it's worked. So, from what I've seen, it's worked. I don't know about the science, but you know it makes me feel more comfortable and also it's the other thing if you're trying to make someone else feel comfortable what would make you feel comfortable so yeah. would you feel comfortable if, if someone else is vulnerable to you first would you feel more comfortable having a conversation yeah. probably yes if someone else makes you a cup of tea would you feel more safe probably yes if someone wants to go for a walk with you would you feel yeah probably yes and I think so yeah. ask those questions yourself sometimes helps you work out how to do it as well
0: yeah and I found from like having like more difficult conversations sometimes yeah like maybe if I initiate the conversation and I start by sharing just being vulnerable first can often open it up to being like oh like how do you feel about this like do you have something sometimes
1: it comes naturally then as well yeah
0: it does and I also agree with sometimes saying things first just like having the courage to just try and like, just get it out. Even if it's your insides are almost cringing just to, I feel like the moment it's out, you almost can't take it back. So you're in it, which, mm-hmm. but then, you know, you're closer to having things. And I think as well, just keep on having the end goal of the conversation in your mind to think this bit is almost excruciatingly awkward and uncomfortable But what will we gain out of this? Will we be closer as friendship or whatever kind of relationship it is, is always, yeah, Yeah.
1: helpful. Exactly.
0: And for those working with young people, how can we make more impact on their lives to ensure full recovery and that they go on to have mentally healthy futures?
1: Ooh, that's really interesting. So I'd say there's really two things. There's again, the vulnerability thing piece, and then there's value. And so I'd say on the vulnerability bit, anyone that's working with children, we need to try and encourage vulnerability in schools and in workplaces. And obviously, this is a difficult thing, because we don't live in a perfect world. And vulnerability is a vulnerability for a reason. And obviously, you know, that can bring up issues. But I think, you know, there's something to be said about breaking down that barrier so many people so many children now are really afraid of talking because no one else has really been vulnerable to them and you learn monkey say monkey do you learn by (laughs) what other people do and so I think if we as adults can be more vulnerable to children and show them that we're not always happy then they will pick up the fact that actually it's okay to be vulnerable and to admit that something's going wrong. You know, if we can sit there and say, you know, this is going on in my life. It's always so secretive, all this stuff, when people are having problems and they don't tell anyone. And and it's an adult life. It's always a secret, like you can't admit to that. I always remember at school, teachers would go off sick for a week and it would all be this big secret and suddenly someone would be like oh you know they went off with stress and it was like oh so that's a really good opportunity to be like you know what I'm really stressed and I'm really unwell with stress Mm -hmm. and look that takes a huge amount but I think vulnerability let's just create that new vulnerable culture but obviously that takes time and that's why I think we need training first to change those cultures in schools first and then value value is a really difficult one but I think we can solve most issues or a lot of issues just by making people feel valued and feel like their life has value and that their time has value and it's something that we overlook and it's very easy especially if you're busy and stressed to dismiss things and to not you know and to not give things the recognition that you could have done but so many young people now Really, really, really struggle to see a future where they're successful and really, really struggle to see a future where they're valued and see value in their time. That's why I speak to so many people at university that are so stressed and so unwell because you're fighting against thousands and thousands of people for one graduate job where you're a cog in a machine and it feels a lot of people don't feel value in that. And so, teaching, valuing people and teaching them value and teaching what value means. And I just think we're in a culture now as well that sort of annoys me that what is valued in society is a good job, a successful job and lots of money. And that is the most ridiculous thing it's such a ridiculous thing. Like the people I know that are happy are not the people out there that are making the amazing money and are not my friends that have got the best graduate job. They're the people that have got the deepest relationships and have got the happiest friends and are helping people. And actually, the happiest people I know don't even work in businesses. They work in charities. That says everything you need to know. And I think we need to also start stepping away from and redefining what value lives are. But, you know, that's a bigger issue. I think in terms of what we can all do, just value and show kids that they are valued and unique because that's such a problem at the moment. I just know so many people are really lost and really unsure of where their place is and their days don't really have meaning. And as soon as you lose meaning and purpose in your day or don't see meaning and purpose, then everything just crumbles. If you can help someone understand the meaning and give them purpose and goals and achievable small goals... There we go. You've really, that's a real impact that people can have. But I think it is vulnerability and giving people value and purpose.
0: Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, I really like that. And should we talk about mental health campaigning and a little bit of your journey with that? So we have spoken about it already, but I think for others who are wanting to like throw themselves into whatever they're passionate about, it's quite hard to actually just get the ball rolling with that and to do that and I think you have an amazing story which you have done that and you probably didn't expect for everything to happen the way it did it probably did it all happen from like one step after the other going back into your story like what were the first few things and what was that like for you then and yeah
1: yeah I mean we've sort of already covered it It was the walk to talk thing that started and I think from my perspective, I get a lot of questions about, oh, you know, how do I even start? How do I do this? How do I how do, I do this? And I think a lot of people have their eyes set on when they talk about campaigning or talk about doing work or talk about changing anything. They have their eyes set so high. And that's good. Don't get me wrong. That's good. But you don't get to a point where you're <laughs> going to Parliament, Downing Street and all this stuff overnight. And I certainly didn't. You know, I started... By getting all of my friends onto a walk around kent and dressing in bright pink colors (laughs) and i think do something that you see is has impact and if there is impact in it and there's truly impact in it then it will grow or naturally and so i think if anyone out there has an idea that they think will create impact go for it because if it creates impact then it will grow and it will be big and it will help but i do think that you know it is a step-by-step process you're right it doesn't happen overnight. And you have to put a lot of work in. I mean, this has been a full-time job for four years. Like that's how much work I've done. And not only has it been a full-time job, I've had university and I've had actual jobs going on. And it has also been a full-time job. At some points, I was working like three full-time jobs at a time just to try and get my university done, this done, and I was doing an internship. And it's a huge amount of work. It doesn't happen overnight. And what I'd say is if you're starting out and you're trying to get attention to a campaign. Maybe you're calling for local change or something like this. Email, 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 write to email, call offices, just... Pester people and be annoying. You're not calling for change because you want to make friends with people. That's not why you're doing it. And so, so many people, I think, are sort of like, "Oh, how do I get attention to this? How do I get a media thing?" Phone up your local media, newspaper, local radio. Phone them up, email them, pitch them, send a media kit. There's all of this stuff. How to build these things are online? Even national news, pitch it to send an email to the Times. You know, they're all of the national journalists their emails are online you can find them email them send them to them researchers for sky news email pastor people annoy them when you're calling for change if you're calling for governmental change email those mps get people to email them for you (laughs) make as much noise as you possibly can and that takes a lot of work don't get me wrong but that's how you get noticed you don't get noticed by sort of passively saying this is a good thing you have to really push it but again it goes into this in the book because for me one of the biggest coping mechanisms i've had through getting through this is campaigning and creating meaning like it doesn't make it any less painful but it gives that pain purpose because you're like okay it's horrible this situation but I'm using that horrible situation to try and change something and that's helping people and that's giving it its purpose so i'd encourage anyone that's been through something difficult or has an idea of what needs to change to go out there and try and do something difficult and that doesn't mean taking over the world and fixing everything that could be very very local that could be something like just getting an extra leaflet in your local gp surgery or it could be something like you know maybe getting a training for one member of staff in your local school or it could be something so small but doing something good is such a good way of giving your pain something meaningful and some purpose but i do say lots of people want to go big and they have big ideas and if you want to do something like that, then just annoy everyone. And remember, you're not there to make friends. I mean, obviously, don't don't do the opposite. Don't try and don't try and make yourself unfriendly. But you're not there to make friends with them. You're there to pitch and make noise and annoy people until they get you on and get you interviews and all sorts. That's what I'd say to people there. And it's all consistency. Yeah. in social media is a whole different story. And again, it goes into all this in the book, but it's all about consistency with all aspects of this.
0: Yeah. And from the start of your journey, did you have any kind of expectations or when you started out, what was kind of what was your goal?
1: Yeah, my expectations were always so low. (laughs) I always thought I was being really ambitious, but then they were always exceeded. So for the walk, we set a set a goal of getting 100 people on the walk. We got 450 people. We had 100 people in one day, like 450 people. And then with the petition, I started the petition basically being like, oh, that'd be a good thing to do. I'm expecting maybe like I don't know a few thousand people to sign the petition. I get a few interviews and sort of get that conversation started. And we got sixty thousand signatures in one day. Like okay. every single moment, it's had to exceed my expectations. It has, and so yeah, I've always just I've always just been doing this because I've thought I've gotten a good idea here, and this is what I mean about impact. If it's got good impact, then people show up, and so really identify something if you want to do this and this is what I've learned is if you're going to do a campaign or try and create change really think about what has the most impact and what is tangible and what is you know what is going to actually be able to create change that you can measure so for instance you know walk to talk you could see that people having a conversation the petition it's very easy to measure if the petitions worked or not you either Have teach training happen or you don't. And also, it's very specific to this issue. It's we're going to do a walk and people can talk on it. Or it's we're going to do this petition and we want this legislation to change to say this. It's very specific part of the mental health problem. A lot of people sort of say, oh, you need better education in schools. That's good, obviously, but it's not very specific. Try and find something specific to say. That's what I'd say. But I've always had very low expectations. I've just sort of always gone, oh, this would be a good idea. Let's see what we can do.
0: (laughs) And you've been pleasantly surprised along the way.
1: Exactly, which is a nice feeling, right? Yeah, it is. Nice. That's a nice way of doing it.
0: Yeah, it is a nice way of doing it. Oh, that's nice. And if you can summarize everything that you've shared into like what is your mental health manifesto, if you could just summarize it in just that one sentence, what would be your key mantra?
1: Yeah. Okay. So if I could wave my magic wand to get me into Downing Street right now, what would I do? Firstly, I'd created legislation to make all teachers trained in mental health first aid as standard as part of teacher training. That's absolutely no brainer. Yeah. Off the back of that, once we've got enough teachers trained and once teachers are trained in mental health first aid and mental health education, we can then start looking at how do we teach that in schools. The government have already announced that that's happening and that is now a requirement for schools, which is good, but I think that's a come too soon because obviously the PSHG Association did a report saying it's actually very dangerous having people that aren't trained in this teaching it, which I agree with. So let's get the people trained. And then we look at very, very carefully, look at how do we deliver this to all key stages through five to 18? How do we do that? Then it's got to be We've got to have better connections between schools and support, NHS clinical support. There is great initiatives at the moment with early support hubs and mental health teams that are connected to schools. When they work, they work very, very well. We need to roll that out to every school. They need to be well resourced. Obviously, a lot of this comes down to resource, but that needs to happen. So then we can train the teachers, they can identify it, and then they can create that referral to the early support hub that's connected to that school, rather than having to go through some referral system to somewhere else. And then obviously with the NHS waiting times, you know, it's a no brainer. They have to come down. That's just, it's appalling. A week after Sam died, we got an email from the from Cam saying that he had an appointment available. And I think that really says everything you need to know. It was a week after he died. So obviously that. And then, you know, what the biggest thing that no one's really talking about at the moment is research. Like we turned the tide on cancer with research. The same is true for mental health. There is some really, really, really exciting research prospects in the mental health space that can absolutely change the game. But, you know, two different charities have called mental health research in the UK chronically low, chronically underfunded. We need to really incentivize mental health research and actually, you know, try and find solutions, creative solutions to some of these problems. I mean, the whole conversation at the moment about LSD and ketamine, like, let's really look into that and deep dive into that because that could be a game changer. Um, Obviously, it's not going to be a magic solution but it Mm. could be a huge step forward towards a big solution and help a lot of people but obviously we need to fund that and incentivize that research and allow that research to actually create that change and that is really my manifesto (laughs) and once we get all those dots connected and we have this public health campaign about talking and vulnerability alongside all of it I think we can make some real real progress here
0: yeah amazing thank you and before we go on to the last question, I'm just curious of what it was like when you met Boris and how did that conversation all go? Mm.
1: <laughs> yeah, look, <laughs> it was very charming. He was a typical politician, very, very, very good at making you feel valued. They all are. They're incredibly good at making you think, oh, yeah, really listening to me right now. Invited me to Downing Street. Downing Street was obviously a very cool place to be. I was a little bit starstruck by it all. But, you know, actions speak louder than words. And it's been four years, almost four years now since we had that meeting and nothing's happened. So, you know, for me, it's like, mm, OK, that really was a terrible, terrible meeting. But, you know, we're still putting pressure on them. I've had meetings in the last month with members of parliament and we, you know, we're still trying to get this sorted because so many people in government do believe what I'm saying is true. And what we're saying, what we're calling for is the right thing to do. But Boris was, yeah, he was yeah, exactly as you'd imagine. Very, very charming, made you feel very, very valued. But it was basically thanks for what you're doing and take a nice photo outside the door before you leave. But you know, it got us so much attention. It got us a lot of press media activity, which brought a lot more attention to petition. And you know, it was so from that point of view, it's good. But it's sad that nothing materialized out of it. It's very very sad, considering how important I thought it was at the time.
0: Yeah, sure. And I guess it highlights just the need to keep on persevering, keep on.
1: Yeah, right. And don't feel demoralized by. Yeah, it. yeah. It in the sort of. Let's keep going because <laughs> yeah. I'm not going away. You think that's going to shut me up? Oh, you've got another thing coming. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay. And the last question we always ask everybody who comes on on here: If you could go back and say anything to your younger self, what would you say?
1: Oh, this is a good question. So actually, I thought a lot about this, and the last chapter of the book is exactly this. It's sort of written to me, a young me, and I would say. God, how do I summarise it? I'd say just be fully vulnerable with yourself. I think when I look back at my life before this happened, everyone talks about talking about their mental health. And actually, I'm not sure I talked about it with myself internally. And sometimes it's very easy to sort of just brush over things with your own, what's going on with you. It's really important, actually, before you talk to anyone else, talk to you, make sure you understand that this isn't OK and you're not OK. And are not okay and i would say that's probably the biggest advice I could give myself, because I remember for two years after Sam died, I was doing interviews and podcasts like this. And I'd say and they'd be like, oh, so how are you coping with everything? And I'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm doing this and this and this and this. I wasn't coping at all, but I was telling myself I was. So I believed that I was. And if I could go back, that's what I'd say. Please, like, sit myself down, make myself a massive cup of tea and be like, Ben, you're, you're just lying. You're lying to yourself. You're not okay. And you need to admit that to yourself. And then once you've admitted that to yourself, you can start thinking about how you go forward and what you can do and whether you need to tell someone or anything like this. But I just know that would have so much benefit to me is actually sitting down and be like, you need to be vulnerable with yourself. Because so many times we aren't. We really, really aren't. We try and brush over things.
0: Yeah. I guess it sounds like it's kind of encouraging us to almost be your own biggest fan, if that makes sense, and treating yourself how you would treat others in that situation and your bestest friends, what would you say to them as well? And Yeah. Oh, I love that one. Thank you. I think that's the end of the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me again.
0: Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, it's been amazing. And I hope that those are listening, like feel less alone if they're struggling themselves. And for those who are helping a loved one, I just I hope that they feel comforted and inspired by this, which I'm sure they will be.
1: Oh, Thank you. Yeah, no, absolutely. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: That's okay. Thanks so much for listening to Compassionate Conversations, Series 2. You can find us on Single Parents Wellbeing. Don't forget to subscribe and tune in to our next episodes. See you soon.